0: So today's topic is actually <laughs> apostolic versus evangelical church planting. And I'm not, wanting to, uh, I'm not wanting to create a false dichotomy or whatever, but I have been involved in uh, church planting for the last 13 years in New York City. I've, have the, I've had the privilege of um, helping plant 11 churches. So a reasonable amount of experience raising people up, trying to make sense of things. And uh, when I first started church planting, There wasn't a a, a lot of resources on it, there wasn't a ton of stuff connected to it. And so I was scrambling to find uh, books on church planting and I found one book that was called Planting Churches in Postmodern Culture. And it had very little to do with postmodernism, very little to do with culture, and very little to do with helpful church planting. (laughs) And so I just made a lot of mistakes and then along the way bumped into some incredible mentors who were very, very helpful for me. So what I, so I wanna, so I say all that to say, years later as church planting's become more and more popular and in many ways something that you know, becomes desirable, if you're a young leader, that certainly gets into your framework of here's one of the great things I can do, I can plant a church, I began to notice that how the best practices around church planting are actually quite different from the biblical model and so as a result, the fruit we were seeing didn't look like the biblical fruit. And this has been a source of like, great frustration for me. So I've tried to go back and sort of, what, what were they doing in the Bible? How does that mash with where we are right now? And then how do we go about doing it? So I'll try and do this in about 30 minutes. And let me just get a clock on here. I'll try and do this in about 30 minutes. And then I'd like to leave plenty of time for Q&A. Um, it's often been my experience that You can come to an event like this, hear great talks, and you're like, if they just answered that one thing, it would have been worth it. So if I can do that with this session, I'd rather send you away with clarity and my best thoughts rather than just generic content. So I'll try and do this in 30 minutes, and then we'll have half an hour for Q&A. And if we run out of questions, you can all go take a nap. How does that sound? (laughs) Okay, great. So... Uh, What I wanna do, I did this for the senior leaders on Tuesday, but I think it is important just to get us on the same page about the kind of moment we're in when it comes to planting churches. And our cultural moment, I don't know if you saw this, and I don't know if this is the same in the the UK, or this got talked about a lot, but the word of the year last year in the United States was post-truth. This is the word of the year. This is the concept that everybody was talking about. And people just seem to live in a world where we just don't believe in absolute truth anymore. The only absolute truth in the world is that whatever I believe is true. And so that can be very challenging when you have an absolute meta claim, like you're wrong, there is one truth, and it's found in the Christian faith. And so that goes down really, really well when your message is, hello, I'm here to tell you you're all wrong, I'm right, and it's good news for you. So we have to acknowledge that our starting point, the claims that we carry, the message we carry, is good news, but it is often perceived as imperialistic and unkind and very aggressive, and so the framework of our message is challenging. We also live in a time which you're very aware of, that is post-Christian. This is, um, so this is my understanding of what post-Christian is. Not that we don't have, that we don't exist or have some level of influence. I mean, is, is, I'm just checking. Is the Queen the head of the Church of England still? Yes. Yeah, I mean, so the Queen runs the church in functionally on paper at the end of the day in this country. So is every person in the UK assigned to a vicar and a parish? Theoretically. Theoretically, yes. Okay, so it's not like you're not here. It's just that people are beyond our faith is the assumption and framework of the good life in our culture. So you're annoyingly hanging around with your ancient Bronze Age scientific worldview and your oppressive sexual vision and your self-righteous pharisaical attitude to much of life. As it seems, certainly in the media, it seems that it's like that. So we're around, but it kind of feels like the world would just wish they could get rid of us and everything would be fine. I saw this in an article called Googling for God. I'm not sure that you can read it, but it says, it's been a bad decade for God, at least so far. Despite the rising popularity of Pope Francis, who was elected in 2013, Google searches for churches are 15% lower in the first half of this decade than they were during the first half of the previous one. Searches questioning God's existence are up. Many behaviors that, they're supposed, that supposedly That he supposedly of whores have skyrocketed. Porn searches are up by 83%, for heroin it's up 32%. How are the Ten Commandments doing? Not well. Love thy neighbor is the most common search with the word neighbor in it, but right behind it, number two is neighbor porn. The top Google search including the word God is God of War, a video game, with more than 700,000 searches per year. The number one search that includes how to and Walmart, which is kind of like a big shopping mart, is like how to steal from Walmart beating all questions related to coupons, price price matching, or applying for a job. So safe to say we've gone through a major shift in our culture, and I've, so uh, I've been in the United States, I moved there in 1997, so 21 years now, and I've just watched America become a, a different country before my eyes, and I don't think it's just because I'm getting older and a little cranky in midlife I think it's because we've experienced a major shift in our culture, particularly away from religious roots. I would articulate that as a shift from authority to authenticity. So the number one goal of our life would be what actually Alan Mann, who is an English pastor and theologian, calls project self. The world is a blank canvas to provide me with maximum opportunity to become the person I've always wanted to be. Does that sound like the modern vision of the typical person in the UK? Project self. So Charles Taylor goes on and articulates this. He says, I mean the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or own way of realizing our humanity and that it's important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society, or the previous generation, or religious or political authority. So that means that nobody can tell you what to do. So I want you to see what a shift this is. For almost 2,000 years, there was external cultural norms, starting way back with the Babylonians, but certainly framed around the Greeks, which had the classical Greek virtues. And the goal of a virtuous society was that you lived up to these virtues and that you took whatever disordered craziness happening inside of you, and you could form those to shared society norms about what the good life is. Well, that's been totally reversed. Now the goal is to reject all of those shared cultural virtues and express in your heart to its fullest capacity whatever's inside of you. And that is a level of staggering shift that's unbelievable. This, I think, is best represented in the trans community, which I know is a very challenging a challenging issue for the church to wrestle with, but the concept of gender identities, I think New York City legally uh, recognizes over 70 now. So you you can basically invent a gender identity on a spectrum of 70 different choices, and there's no framework, philosophically or legally, to limit that, because it's whatever you feel you are deserves legitimate expression. And that is a fact of the world that we live in. Also society norms versus a blank canvas, obviously religion seen as a bit of a Debbie Downer on its best day. The previous generation often a giant dis- uh, disconnect and they say, well, you don't know about my life. You didn't grow up like I grew up. And a lot of times broken families, broken, broken homes. People move away from where they grow up so they're severed functionally from family culture. They go away to university and often never return to the same place. A lot of transiency. And then lastly, All authority is personal authority, narrative authority. I shared on Tuesday, so I'll try and speak in university settings at Bible clubs or whatever. And if I start saying this is what the Bible says, you just see people just fold their arms and get angry and start preparing their mental defenses. But if the other day, if I said the other day I was reading the Bible and it really just made me feel loved, you watch people just open up and go, yeah. So there's no authority in the Bible. The authority is what I feel about the Bible. Now, I say all that to say, it's not easy to plant churches now. How did this happen? Well, in some sense this has happened because we have been pushed from the center to the fringe. People don't care if we have private faith, but it can't live in public space. And that's why you'll find uh, political Catholics in political office in the United States saying things that are totally insane like this. I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I think that every person has to make their choice. It's like, look, if you're a Catholic, it doesn't matter what you personally think about that issue. The church has an official position and you're, you should be thinking of it. So when a political candidate says, well, I'm personally opposed to it, I'd never want a legislator push out on others. It's like, well, I'm not, that's, that's the typical vision of what it means to be alive. We don't mind having personal faith, but it can't be represented Politically, also we've, been, we've shifted from being seen strange as being seen, being seen I mean, this is my fourth talk and I'm running out of talk, so I'm just working. Being seen from being strange to being a threat. So uh, a book came out written by two friends of mine called Good Faith, interesting book. And they basically did, it was the, the latest research from Barna on how Christianity is viewed in America. And Christians are viewed by these two phrases, extreme and irrelevant. So that's encouraging, isn't it? So a Christian shows up, and tell me about him, totally extreme and completely irrelevant at the same time. So here's normal life, and Christians dwell right here on the two axes that nobody cares about, extreme and irrelevant. In many ways, people think that if Christians get back in power, this is what we're gonna do to our modern culture. We're gonna act like ISIS and just wipe out all the progress that's been made for human rights, all the progress that's been made for every sort of group that's been oppressed in our larger culture. It's challenging. Now, this means that I think the shift is that our culture's gone from controlling us to penalizing us for our faith now. So before it was like, get out of the public square, we control the center. Now they're like, if you try and get back in, you'll be penalized for this. And so, this is not persecution, but it is penalization. We don't have a larger voice. Anytime they put a Christian on TV, they're an idiot who doesn't represent a single Christian I've ever met, and now they're the spokesperson for God for the nation. I mean, it's just, where do they find these people? Now, the result of that is that we have shifted from a moral majority to a shrinking minority. And when that happens, when you lose that much cultural territory, it feels, it feels weird, doesn't it? Some of you older folks who I bless and honor been walking with Jesus forever. How, dis- how disorientating is it to you in our cultural moment? Do you, you look at what's currently happening with sexuality and you're just like, I just never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. Not, not in the courts, not on the telly. It just is just crazy. Or some of the the things with our technology, it just seems like it's happening so quickly. You just can't, can't make sense of it, you can't keep up with it. So a lot of times when you have moments where you lose this much cultural ground this quickly, we basically have gut reactions to how it feels to be pushed out by the world. And here's what I think some of those gut reactions are, fear. Somehow we feel like if the church doesn't have cultural power, will we really be able to thrive? Self-preservation. We need to work on maintaining our rights as Christians in schools and public places and we need protection from secular lobbyists. Compromise. Sometimes people's approach is like, look man, we just need to give in. How do you, how do you react here? And then sometimes syncretism, which is basically popular folk religion and it's a culture mashup. This is like by the high priestess Oprah and uh, she just basically just whatever man, whatever works for you and brings peace. You can call it Jesus, you can call it the, the force, the secret, whatever you want, but it's basically taking all of these trees and making a religion that works for you. These are cultural, repro- cultural approaches. So I just wanna say uh, for a moment that the two least compelling responses for millennials, and I'm not a millennial, I'm a, an absolutely lost generation X in the middle, <laughs> The two least compelling narratives that I think work with millennials are fear and self-preservation. So a lot of times when people get ready to step into leadership, like they have legitimate fear about where our country's heading and they have a desire to preserve whatever cultural power or influence they have left. And I just can't think of anything less compelling of a worldview to reach millennials in a new church than we're really worried about how things is going. Let's do whatever we can to keep our stuff. Just doesn't work. And the other ones, compromise and syncretism, basically guarantee that God will withdraw his hand and that your church will really just struggle. And at some point, you'll just be so meshed with the culture that there would just be no point being a part of it. You know, it's like, why set the alarm to get up, just hang out with people who are, and the vision of life is like, be nice and stuff. Be nice and stuff. It's like, okay, sweet. Game of footy, few mates, sleep in. That feels better than nice and stuff, doesn't it? So it just loses its power and it becomes irrelevant. And you know that certainly that there's denominations and and other movements in this country that when they go that way, they're just so easily dismissed. So the good news is that even in cultures like this, the kingdom of God still advances. I think it's a little bit of a flaw to think that the country has to be in a good spot in order for the church to thrive. Actually, the darker it gets, the the better the church seems to be, as seen by what's happening in Iran. So I don't, I don't delight in, uh, in basically this apocalyptic meltdown of modern society at all, but I do see great, that was a joke if it's on the internet, don't tweet that, as like pastor sees apocalypse. I see opportunity, because here's the thing, uh, if the gospel really is true, the more people rebel against God, the more dysfunction there will be because of their disobedience and the better the gospel looks when it's lived out properly. I think this is like an incredible opportunity. The best way that you can see something, and I think the best teaching methods are contrast methods. This or that, this is Jesus. There's two roads, an narrow road or a wide road. It's two kinds of houses, two kinds of trees. So when you get clarity on like, hey, this is what it's like to live for project self and do whatever you want, and this is what it's like to be known and reclaimed by the person who created you and chose you, wants to redeem you and give you a future. I mean, you pick, pick your path. This one ends up, when it's lived properly, looking very, very beautiful. Now, I've just realized that that has nothing to do with evangelical versus uh, apostolic church planning, but I hope that was a helpful cultural analysis for a few minutes on where we're going. And you're aware of what you're in for. Okay, now, so, so As a professional speaker now, let me say, point two, point two. (laughs) What church planting has practically become an evangelical culture, as far as I can see it, it looks something like this. Now, it, it may not be the same here in the UK as much, but I bet it's at least a little bit like this. Number one, someone gets a vision for a community. It's either the leader says, you know, we're going to go after this particular neighborhood or this particular area, or someone's at a meeting like this, and God just whispers something on their heart, and they're like, you know, he's burned Coventry on my heart or whatever it is. And then you get a vision for that. Coventry's a place, isn't it? Yes, good. So (laughs) after, after you get a vision for a community, then what ends up happening is that you go to that community and you connect with other Christians in that community. You start meeting other Christians and you see who's around there. And then often, if that community is hard, either it's it's an underprivileged neighborhood or it's a city center neighborhood, or you're a little bit of an outsider and you don't get the culture, and you've got people who wanna be a part of this, it can be very, very hard, particularly if you get a team that moves there to help you and they're not from there or whatever, which is a strategy a lot of people employ. You can spend all of your time just meeting the needs of your core team. And whenever you plant churches, you know there's tremendous spiritual warfare. The number one warfare we see is children having nightmares. It's like someone starts church planting in New York and they reach out to me, John, can I grab coffee? I'm like, let me guess, your children are having nightmares. They're like, oh my gosh, is that a word of knowledge? I'm like, no, this is what happens when you do it here. And so it gets very, very hard. Any stresses in marriage that just look like little cracks just become canyons under pressure. It's very, very hard, so it can become, if you're not careful, very introverted. Then you established programs to keep those Christians attending your church planting projects. So it's like, if you plant with someone and they have little kids and you're like, well, we actually feel like we just wanna reach young people we're not gonna do creche. They're like, what are you talking about? There's gonna be creche. And so then you don't really have a a mum's worker and so you put the kids in there. And so if you're not careful, you build the ministry based on the people who are in your core team rather than the needs of the community that you're a part of. And then the goal is always to get it paying for itself. Because whoever gave you money in the first place wants you to get off their their paycheck. It's like, just go. And if you're raising your own salary, you want the church to pay for you. It's like, okay, can you get me on one day a week? One One and a half days a week? three days a week. Let's do a special offering to get me at four days a week. We're just trying to get it to that point. And then, because that's really hard, by the way, if that happens, we might see a few people convert along the way and we'll make little videos and tell the absolute best stories that don't represent normal ministry whatsoever. The one highlight story. Dear God, there is a God. Here's our story. You know, to try and justify the funds and the expense and all the rest of it, so... If I sound really facetious, I'm not trying to be. I'm just trying to be honest. This is like what happens so often. Am I, is this the same in your country? Oh yeah. So here's my question. Is this what you really signed up for? No. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what, I wanna do a really, really few hard years of stress and spiritual warfare and then just see a couple folks become followers of Jesus. That's not it. We signed up for more than that. So, going back to the scriptures then, what what was the apostolic pattern when they planted churches? So this is my take of a little bit more of how it's biblical. Now, in the Q&A, you can ask any questions you want, but I wanna point out that borrowing Jesus' contrast method, that's what I'm doing here. So I'm trying to show what I see it become in many, many ways. And then what I think the scriptures sort of lay out an apostolic pattern for. And then you need to figure out in the middle of that what God's calling to you and how to live in the tension. But I'm trying to highlight two ways of thinking. So the first thing that we see in the New Testament is that it's normally the Spirit's call and sending. It's the Holy Spirit when they're, remember in uh, uh, the city of Antioch like I talked about, while they're worshipping and fasting, they're ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit set them apart and send them to me. And I love church planning and I think it's great, but my experience has been it's the people who have the clearest sense of the Spirit's call that do the best. Because for them, church planning is not a good idea or something our movement's doing. It's like, I gotta do this or I'm disobeying Jesus. And I'm gonna do this no matter what, and the fruit is up to Him because this is an obedience play for me. And I can just tell you the mentality of like this is a great idea or that's a needy area, we should do something as opposed to I got a conviction from the Spirit. That is a different kind of church planter. Secondly, the person who shows up has to have some sort of connection to the context of the community that they are a part of. So if we believe that um, the gospel, it's important to make the gospel make sense to people in different areas, which is certainly what the Bible teaches, We have to understand the context and community that we're a part of. So whenever I have planted a church, and I'm in New York City, I live in Manhattan, which is a very, very diverse area, and it's a place where there's people from all over the world, and it's always changing. So even though I'm from Australia originally, people don't perceive me as an outsider because everybody's sort of an outsider. So whenever I go to a neighborhood, and because neighborhoods are always changing, I don't know if that's true here, but they're often in great transition or something will happen and 10 years later, this thing that wasn't a dominant force becomes a dominant force. I think there's four areas that we have to look at in order to really understand how do I bring the good news of Jesus to bear on this area. So the first area is a historical dimension. The second one's an ethical dimension. The third one's an ethnical dimension. And then this one here, very easy word, a phenomenological dimension. So I took a class by a guy, got his PhD at Oxford in contextual missiology, and these are the words he used. So I just made it really simple, and I just put it down to these four things here, which is we have to understand the history of the place that we're in. We have to understand what's valued in that particular place. We need to ask what relationships are the key relationships here and what is, this, what is this community's view of spirituality? So whenever I plant a church in a neighborhood or an area and I never make assumptions, there's normally, on top of that, there's, there's five layers to the neighborhood or the area that I'm praying through. And I, I don't like to use this word because it does sound a little too Pentecostal for me, but I like to basically develop a spiritual map or understanding of what's happening. So we will put a team together, and the team will do a neighborhood audit or a community audit. And we will send them out to try and understand these four things, thinking through these five layers of an area. Number one, what is the history of this area? So I'll give an example. I live in a neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen. It's a lovely place. It was originally called Hell's Kitchen because... um, Well, it was, a policeman apparently said to another policeman, this place is hell, and he said, this is worse than hell, this is where hell is cooked up and served. And so that caught on, and that became, the neighborhood became Hell's Kitchen. Traditionally, an Irish immigrant neighborhood. It's where Walter Rushenbush uh, launched the social gospel movement out of. In fact, I live one street over from his church and it has tremendous poverty, racial prejudice. The neighborhood of Harlem, which you've probably heard of, exists in New York because it was race riots between African-Americans and the Irish in my neighborhood, and African-Americans were being killed because of something that happened, and so they fled north to establish a new community, and that became Harlem. So my neighborhood is also a neighborhood where the high priest of the Church of Satan lives. And so I don't wanna judge him, but it's like, almost a little too cute to have the high priest of Satan living in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> um, my neighborhood's a gay neighborhood. So if you, walk, if you walk through my neighborhood, the ads that I see every day, that my children see every day, are aggressively sexual. This is a big part of the neighborhood. And so we did this other levels of research and we realized that it's one of, it has like the, one of the most intense histories of violence in all of New York City. So all of that is soaked into the atmosphere somewhere. Second thing we start asking is like, what is the current reality of the neighborhood? So the neighborhood I live in is a, whenever the gay community comes, you know, you know this is written about, Richard uh, Florida addressed all this in creative class, where the gay community comes, art comes, great food comes, great shops come, and property values rise. And so my neighborhood is now a very, very swanky, foodie neighborhood filled with a lot of gay people. The poor are being priced out. It's post-gentrified in its current reality. Um, families don't like to live there. I remember when I moved into the neighborhood to start a church there, my friend said, this is a quote, good luck. Nobody wants to live there and nobody can afford to live there. And I was like, well, thank you. I appreciate the words of encouragement as I moved my family in there. And raise funds, so thank you. Then I wanna understand, where's this, where's this place trending? Like, what's on the horizon of this community? How could I get in front of it and be an expert in that or make a contribution to that? Where's this neighborhood trending or where's this region or this area trending? What's emerging on the horizon for this community? And then I ask the question, what relationships or people of peace has God given me in this neighborhood? Like, so this seems, this seems to be the Apostle Paul's strategy, they try and find these people of peace, they go find Lydia, they try and find a spot. Paul started with synagogues because that was his natural connection point. What relationships do I have? If I was to map out this area, who do I know, where are they, what do they represent? And then lastly, this one here is like, what promises of God has He given me for this region? Like, what are these rhema words, these faith promises There's just like this, I will pray this into the concrete soil of this neighborhood until this breaks through. There will be kingdom fruit here, God has promised me. Very, very important to have those for your prayer life. They can either be scriptural verses, they can be prophetic words. You know what Paul said to Timothy? When Timothy's beat down, he says, recall the prophetic words that were given to you when when the elders spoke to you, he says, by recalling them, you may be able to fight well. So those times when you just think you're mad, you can re-prophesy to yourself (laughs) these truths over your life they give you confidence and courage. And if you're walking around, you know the history, you know what's currently happening, you know where it's headed, you know people, and you know who God's made you to be and what he's doing. That's like not bad for church planting. So get making sure you've got that when it comes to connecting to the place where you're going to preach. Next, you have to communicate the gospel. So how do we communicate the gospel? The power is in the gospel. It's not in your presentation. It's not in how cool you are. The power is in the gospel. My youth pastor came to Christ because he was on acid at a nightclub and put a tract in his pocket and came down and read it. So that still works apparently. I'm here because that's what happened to him. Let's believe in the power of the gospel. Let's communicate the gospel. Are you clear on the gospel? No more mushy gospels. He loves you is not the gospel. It's part of the gospel but you have gotta have clarity on this. So I'll show you this, this is whenever the apostle Paul would go to a different place, he would have a different starting point and he would end at the same place. So when he's preaching to the Jews in Acts chapter nine, he's talking about the God of promise to the sons of promise. It's a thoroughly Jewish framework in his understanding. In Acts 13, he's preaching to Jews and Gentiles, so he talks about the God of promise who saves everybody who believes. But when Paul comes in Acts 17 to the Gentiles, he talks about the God of creation who will save the sons of creation. So he was, he was a contextual missiologist who was able to discern where people were, different starting points, but he was always get the gospel in this. So for example, when he's on Mars, Hill in Acts chapter 17, starts off very complimentary, doesn't he? Wow, wonderful spiritual hunger that you have in your city. Like I'm walking around, I just notice you're so spiritual. I just affirm this about you. In fact, you're so spiritual that you have a, a, a statue or a temple to an unknown God. Incredible. By the way, I know the unknown God. Can I tell you who he is? And they're like, oh, thank you, he's wonderful. And then he just starts rebuking them very, very uh, skillfully. Uses poetry, uses their own language, but he says, the God who made heaven and earth, look, he doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands. Now, if you're standing on Mars Hill and you look around, all you see is temple made with human hands. He's like, he doesn't dwell here. And, and he ends by saying, look, in the past, look, you've been in ignorance, that's okay. But now God demands all people everywhere to repent because there's gonna be a day of judgment when He judges the world according to His Son. So He starts off thoughtful and connecting. What does He say to the Jewish community? The Messiah was coming, you knew He was coming, and you crucified Him, repent, He's back from the dead. Totally different approach. All of the assumptions that exist there. So my, one of the lessons I've learned is that people may not be rejecting the gospel, they're rejecting the way that I'm presenting the gospel. So I wanna make sure that I've really thoughtfully spent time understanding this. The gospel does this, it, 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 there's things we have to understand, there's things we have to critique about our culture, there's things we can affirm within our culture that are good, there's things we need to uh, confront, and then we need to make sure that we are sure that we are always addressing current pressing needs of what's happening so that people can experience that. So we need to make sure we, get, we preach the gospel clearly. Next thing, we need to see people rescued and converted. If you preach the gospel, people get saved. In the Bible. That's that that wasn't a, that's true. When in the in the Bible, they would preach the gospel, and then people would respond to the gospel. And then out of that, they would then work on forming the community. They gather the community from the harvest rather than from their mates. And then what they would do is bring a theological and community formation and foundation. It's staggering to me how many of the epistles, the epistles are incredibly contextual, but how many of the epistles they would just say, here's how to be the people of God now. Don't do that. Don't have sex with each other's spouses because that's not appropriate for the church. Don't sue each other. Don't do that. You are brothers and sisters in Christ now. Don't steal from each other because you're a part of the same family. Don't speak that way anymore. Don't think in those cultural terms anymore because you're the new humanity. Staggering how much theological and community formation the apostles did through the epistles to get people to understand. People often say to me, John, you're preaching so long. I'm like, do you know how hard it is to form people in our modern moment who are radical individuals into a church family? I spend half my time telling our church how to be our church because nobody knows how to be the church. It's an important part of that. And then out of that, they begin to identify people with the gift of leadership and leaders are put into positions of influence and then they're established. And then the community is invited into a larger apostolic mission, what you would call the movement. Church gets planted, this happens, and it's like, we wanna bring you into a larger apostolic sphere of mission. And then you get connected to apostolic relationships for further mission. And so this would be your area leaders or your regional leaders. And they're always reminding you the kingdom of God's bigger what's happening here. We wanna invite you to join God's mission in the whole world. Seeing the kingdom of God everywhere and in every way or something like that. And then what you see is that these these churches become hubs or outposts of mission and the mission is extended. So just a recap slide for those of you who wanna see it. The Spirit's call and sending, connection to context and community, communication of the gospel, people rescued and converted, a communities gathered, Theological and community formation and foundation, leaders are established, the community is invited to larger mission and apostolic relationships are cultivated. The mission of the kingdom's extended in the world. Do you see the difference between the two? There's a fundamental difference. One is built on seeing people who don't know Jesus come to know to Him. The other one is like built on helping Christians struggling in the church plant to stick with the mission. And we have to love people, and it is great to have a a competent team, but I just don't think we're seeing the kind of fruit we wanna see right now. So we gotta find ways, how do we get amongst the lost? Where are the lost, and how do I get the gospel to the lost? Not how do I build programs and hope they come to them. How do I get the gospel to the lost? Where are those places? That's a totally different posture. So my basic approach is very, very simple, and it's childlike. It's born some measure of fruit. I just pray a lot, a lot. The, the thing I love about the Holy Spirit, I'm so jacked up, he has to be a counselor that's inside of me. I have, I'm so weak, he has to give me power so that I can actually follow him properly. I don't know what I'm doing, so he has to guide me. And we pray all the time, come Holy Spirit. You know the prayer I pray the most? Help Holy Spirit because he's the helper, it's his job description. So when I'm praying, I'm like, whose job in the Trinity is it to do what? Holy Spirit, help, you're the helper. Come alongside, strengthen, lead, guide, power. So I spend a lot of time praying and just saying, show me where you're moving. Open doors for me. Lead me to people of peace. Show where God. I don't have to beg you for your kingdom to advance as if that's what I want and you don't want. This is what you want. So I'm I'm here for you, show me how I can join this. And I cannot say enough, the number one mistake I see church planters failing in is they do not have strong enough lives of prayer. Praying activates the power of God. The, The promises of God in the Bible, they're kind of a joke, aren't they? They're so extraordinary, we have incredibly nuanced theologies to dismiss the literal words of Jesus with His promises. And we would rather theologically reduce them so we don't feel bad about our experience rather than press it and try and close the gap and see if he actually does those things today. So if you're a church planter here, look, let me just give you a, a high five, a handshake, a hug, I'll hold you. Because it is hard. Whatever you're doing, man, praise God for your sacrifice and your faith. But I hope this at least like stirs something in your spirit to see a little bit more of that biblical model so it's not it's church growth, not just church transfer, and the kingdom of God is actually advanced. I close with an apostolic promise for you. And one day I was, I was praying in the morning, I was praying outside the Port Authority under this bridge, and I read this uh, verse in my, my daily readings, and this just stands out to me. And this is, this is, can we go to the next slide? My clicker's gone. Well, I've got a great promise for you. It's uh, from Romans. Chapter one, there it is. Now, I want you to see these two things. So this is, this is Paul's apostolic ambition. Uh, by the way, how many of you think the neighborhood you live in is worse than Rome? You know Rome in, in, in the Bible with the emperors and no. that? Nero, sitting, making the, setting him on fire, torches for the parties. Domitian, you know these emperors, yeah. So Paul's, Paul's gonna come to Rome and he says this, I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, a vision for a strong church. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, one another ministry. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now, spiritual warfare, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I had among the other Gentiles." What's Paul's like? Look, I'm coming to Rome because there's a harvest in Rome. Doesn't matter how many temples there are, doesn't matter how much persecution there is. You know the, Christian, the, the reputation that Christians had in Rome? You know that famous thing where it's, there's a donkey on a cross and, they, and the, 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 the um, graffiti says, almost inappropriately, I can't remember the guy's name starts with an A, name like Alexandros or whatever, worships his ass God, and it was a crucified donkey. That was the graffiti on the walls of Rome. So if you think you're spoken well of, you're in good company and then Paul's like, doesn't matter, none of this matters because I've got the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation and I anticipate harvest. I anticipate harvest in Rome. So I'm coming because I've seen God move amongst the other Gentiles and I wanna see him move where you are. I anticipate harvest. So I I love this as a promise that God would plant strong churches that there will be harvest in the least likely places and that the power of God will be released in extraordinary ways. That's the end of my talk. That's the end of Apostolic versus Evangelical Church planting. So hopefully there's a few little thoughts uh, floating around there and we can do some Q&A for 20, 25 minutes or so. Does anybody have a question? And could you say a bit about the implications of it for training up future leaders and future church planters to do church planting in this other way? So what was that first part of the question? Can you say a little bit about what? About the implications of um, this for training up future leaders and church planters. Forgive me, I'm going blind and deaf. Did you say implications or?
1: Implications, yeah.
0: Yes, how do you raise up other church planters? Yeah, so my my take is, uh, so when church planting got popular, they would let anybody plant a church. And 70%, 90% of they just failed. And the people that were left are still nursing scar tissue today. Very, very hard, very painful. And then they have this wonderful idea um, called assessment, church planting assessments. And so they saw they were 70% more effective when they would assess church planters. So I think that there, there is a kind of person with a kind of po- uh, call that is a church planter. Church planting is a specific call so I try and find so I've I've got I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what are those core competencies, and I'd be happy to send you if you email me a document of twelve core competencies of church planters. But here's my basic take on what church planters need. These, these would be a cluster of gifts. So I'm I'm trying to discern are these gifts present. Number one, are they effective with non-believing people? Because if if you're not good at leading people to Jesus, don't plant a church. Do something else because that's the absolute heart of it. Number two, how much pain can you take? It's like, what this is a legitimate question. What's your pain threshold? What's your spouse's pain threshold? Number three, does change delight and excite you or beat you down or terrify you? And if you've got got a high pain threshold and you can really handle change, you've got solid character and you've got a spouse who's on board, I'm like, okay, let's, let's do this. Then I'll, so I'll bring them basically into my life and I'll just try and impart everything I've got to them. You can do this through formal education and oftentimes you guys have like a gap year thing. Is that a, is like a discipleship year, a one year program that you can go through. You've got these modules, this incredible, do you have to be Vineyard to use your training website or whatever? Because I can become Vineyard for like a dispensation if I can access <laughs> some of that stuff. Because very, I'm very Vineyard-ish, but it's very, very, so I would, I would like take people through that and I would walk them through it. And I said before, I'm trying to develop people in three areas, theology, character, and skill. Know, be, do. And then I'm working on developing those areas and then I'm trying to create ministry environments and opportunities that they can be in. So I'll get them to do something and I'll give them feedback on how they did. And then I'll get them to do a little bit more and I'll give them a little bit more feedback. Then I'll let them start initiating. You know that general process. And if, if it feels right and if we feel like, this, okay, this person has the skill, they have the character, they have the theology, they have the pain threshold, they have the spouse, they have these evangelistic instincts or whatever. Now, is there a place or a sense of call? And I will ask the question, how do I get money to try and resource and support them? There's nothing particularly godly about sending people out poor to struggle in church planting. So it's kind of amazing how much Paul asks for money for missions in the New Testament. I'm serious. just. Just go through the epistles on, hey, can I get a bit of money? He's always like, can I get a bit of money? And also I will remember the poor, but can I get a bit more money? He's always looking for resources. So I try and get resources for him and I try and set them up to win with appropriate coaching so that they have a reference point of how it's going in the process. That's, that's my basic take, but I'm like kind of relational with it, but it's a combination of relationships, training, opportunity, environment, those sorts of things. So. I'm not, it's whoever's got the microphone's
1: dictating. Whatever. At the back here, oh, that's yeah. loud. Um, straight in front of you. Oh yeah. It's not so much a question, just maybe ask your thoughts. I've been thinking a lot about planting a church, but like planting a business in the church. So the church I go to, we've started a second site. So not so much a plant, but we were given a community center by the council. They just didn't want it anymore. But it's fully functional. That feels.
0: That's pretty good.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's so it's like fully functional. So there's classes and all sorts that go on the week, you know. And so in a sense, it kind of pays for itself, you know. So, just I've been really thinking about if you could plant churches, but you could like plant a business in the church. You would obviously then practically pay for it, but there could be all kinds of other things that come as a result of that. Whether you had any thoughts about that.
0: Well, um, churches and businesses are fundamentally different things. So the, the church is under the direct lordship of Jesus. He's the head of the church. You've got sacraments. You've got the call to discipleship or ordinances. You what know, You've got the call to discipleship. The goal is to make a prepared bride for Jesus and to send it out on mission. So I think if you're clear on that, you can, you can get incredibly creative as to how you express that where you express that and things like that. So, I would love to have a community center. So, there's a, there's a missional concept called Business's Mission. And Business's Mission basically tries to ask how do we plant businesses that are led by Christians that can be like a front door for mission? But at some point, a business can't be a church. And I, don't, I think they're fundamentally different issues. But I love the idea of Christians owning a business blessing people and seeking to reach out, and doing an excellent job. By the way, whatever you're doing is the best of whatever it is, wherever you're doing it, and then utilizing the resources for further church planning. That feels great. I don't, you know, I, I think if Paul was not as nomadic, maybe he would have set up the Apostle Paul's like permanent tent service, and he would have just dug in, and he would have done that, and he did the lecture hall of Tyrannus in the afternoon, so he's making tents, and then he's doing discipleship and mission, and, I think it's a wonderful idea. I think it does alleviate the burden of having to raise so much money on the front end and to rely on contributions. So my take with church planting, just so you know, and this is the biblical model that, or this is a model I see in Scripture, is that apostolic ministry should be done for free as much as possible. And you can either do that through tent making where you get a job and you're paying your own way, you can do that by fundraising, but I don't think that the people you're reaching should bear the burden of the initial mission At some point, that will transition to a health, a healthy congregation. And then it is the congregation's biblical obligation to care for the needs of that particular local community. So, I don't know if I've clearly answered your question there, but there's a few thoughts. Someone gives you a building, mate, do something with it. I love it. That's, I mean, you know what I would, I would, I mean, I don't know what I would give to have somebody give me a building and say, do something redemptive with it. So praise God for that, man. I just prayed that that is incredibly fruitful. And great opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I think
1: um, so many times we've seen um, like a group of people go out in a spirit of revival, but within a matter of weeks, it crumbles into survival mode. So I wonder, what habits did you put in place to guard against that?
0: So that, that, that is very, very true. Um, so I, there's a concept that I talk about. I really appreciated that talk on rest. I, I'm... F- I'm f- I'm flying back from England so I can have a Sabbath. I, I spoke at an event in California last week and I ended it so I could be back. I'm a big Sabbath practicer. I love Sabbath. I take time off every year. I, I, wanna, I wanna be in it for the long haul. I mean, I take significant time off. You know how, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Do you know how much time you get in America? I came to America and they're like, I got my first real job and they're like, okay, we're just going over your package. You get 10 days of holidays a year. And I was like, well, it's gonna take me three days to get there, it's gonna take me two days to like, get over how angry the kids were when we traveled. I'm gonna have a couple of days, then we have to psychologically turn the corner to go back, travel back, and I'm gonna be completely exhausted. So I want more holidays. When I was a butcher in Elizabeth South, I got way more than that. So as soon as I became my own boss, I was like, give me two months a year, I'm starting there, I'm getting back holiday pay. So I I do take significant holiday time and I realize it's an extraordinary privilege to do so. So I'm after a concept that I would call sustained urgency. If you're always urgent, you'll burn out. And if all you care about is sustainability, you're not gonna have any sort of intensity to get work done. And so every person has to figure out who has God made me What pace can I run at at a healthy manner for how long? And this is why sort of that assessment process for church planters is very good. And then you need to get right to the edge of what is a sustainable pace and just stay there. And over the course of time, if your capacity grows because you've learned to live in that, you can increase it a little bit. But sustained urgency is the key to me. I I see this happen in New York all the time. Church planters come and they're just going mad and they almost burn out and then everything's about, everything is about Sabbath and, 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 it's, and I'm just like, look, I appreciate that, but everybody doesn't get that luxury in their life. And if you stop living amongst the urgency of need or whatever, you're, just, you're not gonna reach anybody. And somehow getting those things together in some manner, I love the language that was used, like the, the rhythm, the redemptive rhythms of Jesus, I think that is brilliant. So you gotta find what those rhythms are. I, I did do an exercise, you may wanna do it yourself, of all the places Jesus spent time. So how much time did he spend with the Father? How much time did he spend with the three? How much time did he spend with the 12? How much time did he spend one on one? And then how much time did he spend in front of the masses to sort of develop my rhythm based on who I am and how I saw Jesus live? Every person has to do that for themselves and figure it out. God's not honored with angry, burned out, bitter Christians. So if your church plan is making you angry and bitter and burned out, you're gonna be embodying bad news. Following Jesus is exhausting and depressing. That will be your message to others. But it can't also be that following Jesus is just like a walk in the park and a week of delicious picnics either. It can't be that. So somewhere in the middle, sustained urgency. That's what I think you shoot for. Yeah. By the way, look. I'm not an expert here, man. I'm making this, just, I, want, I don't even like this dynamic, which is a big crowd of people mm-hmm. and then me on a podium with a microwave or whatever. I may be wrong here. I'm just like, I'm just working on stuff just like you are. I'm, I'm always revisiting stuff and trying to make it out. So but I just, John, imagine, I, not, I not think, John, dynamic. that's one of the reasons yeah.
1: that we, hello, hello, yeah, hello. Sorry. John, I think that's one of the reasons yeah. that we love you, man. Right. And we are so grateful that you've been part of uh, this thing for a few days. I know for a lot of people, uh, you've really sparked hearts and comforted hearts and um, wrecked us as well in the best sense of the word. So we honor <laughs> you and we, we're glad that you're here. Yeah. We pray blessing on your family and, and all you. that. So we know. Thank you. Um, the, yeah. 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 So the word apostolic is a loaded word. We all know that. But you know, there's stacks of stuff around for um, evangelists to learn how to grow into it, um, prophets and teachers and stuff. What are some of the steps that those who in the room who are perhaps at apostolic type gifting on them, how they can start stepping into that, John?
0: Well, my take is, I mean, there, there does some, seem to be something about the apostolic in terms of biblical ordering. So I'm thinking in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, thinking in Ephesians 4, those passages uh, about the ordering of the gifts, first, as, first apostles, then prophets, or whatever. There's something about, the, I think, the apostolic ability to pioneer new kingdom ground in an area. But once, that's, once you've even got a headway in, like once you've cracked the door open, you just start leveraging it for the gifts of other people to come into play here. Because if a church plant is always an only apostolic, it will be exhausting. Because apostles are always like, more, next, drive, go. And you just get, in so you need, I'm a big believer in the fivefold ministry. So their primary job, once it looks like it's gonna make it, is to immediately begin to empower and release teams of other people for a healthy church culture. So I think the primary role of apostolic ministry, they pioneer and then they establish. They immediately start asking these things. So Paul pioneers and then the next thing is like, okay, folks, let's get some elders in place here. And he actually uses that language. He's like, I want, I want you to complete or finish what was left undone in Crete. You know, so he's very, very concerned that leaders rise up and that, and that there's gifts in ministry. And it's uh, very interesting to me how much, um, the structure, the, the importance of of doing church life in such a way that everybody gets to be involved in the church and use their gifts. You know that's very important. That's why like, you've got to have small groups. You've got to have other environments where everybody can speak. Everybody has a chance to to share what God's put on their heart. So establish and empower seems to be the two steps that that actually exist in this. That that's my take. But. Hi, John. Um, you mentioned about getting the gospel to the lost. I'm here. Sorry. Uh, sorry. <laughs> It's like um, a big sea of lights, for yeah. <laughs> uh, what strategies have you and your church used in getting the gospel to the lost? So, I, so, I, I, so I've got a couple. I will just say, hands down, I do not get paid, endorsed, supported, or reimbursed by Alpha. They did bring me over for a lovely trip once, but that was not enough. <laughs> Alpha has been the most effective thing we've ever done to reach the lost. Now, in England, you're over it, man, or you've just been doing it forever, but you know it never caught on in the US. And I think it's because the UK was so, had so much less cultural Christianity than America that process evangelism was just, all the paradigms in America were basically, if you die tonight, would you go to heaven? And a big part of that, I don't know if you got caught up as much as this, but a part of the American psyche was the Cold War, which was a very real thing And so if your primary fear was we're in a giant um, Armageddon possible kind of nuclear battle or standoff with the Soviet Union, and there's like tremendous cultural fear. Kids would grow up doing like drills under their desks in case a nuke was dropped and all of this. It makes very good sense to have a paradigm that's like if you die tonight, where will you go? No one thinks like that anymore. So now everybody's like, if you live, what sort of life will you live? Which seems very obvious. And Alpha becomes the kind of tool for us where over the course of time, people are really open to a lovely meal, fellowship, they're lonely, and coming to a place. So that, that formula feels like its time has come for us. Now, that's a tool, but you have gotta to use tools properly or they're not effective. And so we have a massive invitational culture. Uh, I always try and acknowledge the lost. Uh, when I, I always try to create a culture, bring your friends to church. Um, and we try and equip people to share the gospel. So. We have like evangelism training. I'm about to, uh, I just built a course which will go online uh, sometime this year called A Missional Life. And instead of asking, how good do you have to be? I'm like, let me do the, like." here's the absolute lowest minimum things you have to be competent in to really be good. It's like, it's stuff like this, seriously. Does the Bible teach we should reach the lost? Well, does it? Well, yes, it does, here's why. Number two. What is the gospel? Well, here's what the gospel is. How do I share the gospel? here's how to share the gospel. So it's like, it's so simple. Now, it'll be a little more sophisticated than that, but the the ideas behind it are very, very simple. So I'm constantly trying to train ways like that. A a big thing that I think creates an environment um, is just like telling stories from the harvest all the time. Those are the success stories that you want and then bringing new believers to always share and bear witness and making those stories the normal stories. And then, obviously, giving people the tools to share the gospel wherever they go. I think that's massive. Now, you guys have an advantage, because you, believe, you don't have just have a theology of church gatherings, you have a theology of the kingdom. And that means that anything can happen anywhere because Jesus is on the move. So empowering people with the confidence and competence to minister wherever they are. So we, our church uses the, uh, the Wimber five-step prayer model. I'm always training people on that. We try and deploy people in their workplaces and wherever to do that. So it's like a multifaceted approach, I guess. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Mike, or John. Yeah, ha- I
0: like that. That was a bit cheeky, but I respect it. Yeah,
1: yeah. over on your, this one. Um, yeah. Can I ask, you mentioned earlier on today that um, the gospel shines brightest in the darkest places. Yeah. We are quite a generally middle-class group of people. Yeah. Um, so we're not all geographically located where perhaps the gospel is gonna show brightest. So yeah. the two models in terms of you move where the need is, or you stay where you are, which is culturally more normal and just visit where the need is. Do you have any opinion on what we should be doing or what's more effective, etc.? Well,
0: are you talking about working with the poor or going to areas that are particularly secular? What's, what are I, I
1: mean more around poverty and areas that we would consider deprived areas in particular, like inner city areas often it would yeah. be in, in the UK.
0: Very complex very complex, so that's why I would start with, is God calling me to do this? Because if not, you can come in, you can be like, you can be a do-gooder, and you can come in, and you know, the poor are used to like well-meaning middle-class people always trying to help, and as soon as it gets hard, they'll leave, and well-meaning people coming in, and when the schools are terrible, they'll pull their kids out and homeschool, or take them somewhere else, or whatever, so they're just used to that, so. I believe like to get credibility in a community like that, I mean, you just gotta tuck in there, and you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta be incarnational. I, I did this for five years. I moved to the poorest neighborhood in Manhattan because I, I set out to take up my cross and follow Jesus, and I ended up living in the Upper West Side, which is a delightful neighborhood near Central Park with wonderful coffee and lovely bakeries. And I realized that my life was just basically pure privilege. And I went up to Washington Heights, which is a a Dominican neighborhood. I put my kids in a school. There was three white kids in the school. My kids were two of them. And um, man, I just couldn't get any traction in the neighborhood, even though I lived there until I found a person of peace and it was through my kids doing taekwondo, which as far as I can tell is the the least demonic or least spiritually influenced martial art. And, and, uh, And then that cracked the code. And my kids became the people of peace. There was 100 families in that. And then I would walk through the neighborhood and they'd be like, "Yo, you're Haley's dad, aren't you? She looks just like you. And I'm like, I know, I'm sorry for her. You know? But that opened all the doors for me. So I don't think, going in and out is very challenging. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I sound very aggressive in what I'm saying here. I'm, I'm not trying to uh, discourage anybody from serving. But often it ends up being we feel better about ourselves because we're doing something rather than really helping, really helping people. So, but once again, I just back out of that driveway and I just say, the Holy Spirit has to tell you who you are and where you are. But to me, the fruit is incarnation of fruit. Another thing that's very interesting, just to complicate this one step further, I have a friend who's lived amongst the poor and he says, you know, you guys, you guys are crazy. You're trying to come into the neighborhood and our whole strategy is get, get us out of here. How do we get kids out of here? We're trying to build a beeline out of this place while you're trying to come into this place. It's very confusing for them. So if your strategy doesn't at least include raising people up and in peace. So it's, it's just very complicated. Yeah, um, yeah. John. Yes. Hello. Um, how might you respond if a very wealthy, well-resourced church plants just down the road from your church? Okay, which answer do you want, the godly answer or the real answer? (laughs) I mean, I shared my story, man. I mean, I'm just doing my thing in New York and you've you've heard of Tim Keller and Redeemer, he's not a bad preacher, and you've heard of Hillsong. Have You heard of Hillsong? Yeah, so they just opened up next door. So my church was on the same street as Hillsong. I'd been serving the neighborhood, living there, paying a stupid amount of money for rent so they could drive their trucks in and set up and then tear it all down and then drive back to wherever it was cheaper. I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> I love Carl Lentz, he's a friend of mine, and I honor him, he's a really great guy. Um, man, if that's, that's your issue. You get, you, like I gotta bring my motives before God. God, use this as an opportunity for my own spiritual formation. Why am I insecure? Why do I feel threatened here, God? Like, and being honest about it, not being more spiritual, well, I know I should or whatever. So I often have to pray very hard prayers like, Father, to change my heart, which is the only way I know I can change is by bringing it into your presence. Bless them, use them. In the kingdom of God, they're gonna reach people I'm never gonna be able to reach. So Lord, get my eyes and I just trust you, Lord, and reveal, you know, I just use it as spiritual formation. Yeah, it's hard. Oh gosh, It's hard. So that was really encouraging. What else we got before we, before we close it out? Maybe one or two more? I think that was the last question, John, unfortunately,
1: because time's, time's come to an end, so, okay, was last so one.
0: Here's what I'm happy to do, if you want. I'm happy to just hang out here and just talk to whoever um, for, a few, for a few more minutes, if that's helpful. And then, um, but let me just say, you guys are wonderful. Really, thank you so much. Whatever you're working on, wherever God's blessing you, Whatever your gifts are, whatever sacrifice you've paid, it is not in vain, it is not in vain. The Father sees you, he loves you, he knows what you're doing, he cares about it, it matters. So just thanks for being faithful wherever God's got you in his vineyard, amen.